Happy New Year and welcome back to Creative Lives, the Lecture in Progress podcast. We hope you've had a restful break over the past couple of weeks. And if you're tuning in for the first time, Lecture in Progress is an online resource that inspires and informs the next generation of talent with practical advice and insight into the creative industry. This podcast series features a broad range of people talking about what they do and how they got to where they are. Our guest this week is Mona Chalabi. My name is Mona Chalabi and I'm a data illustrator and journalist. Originally from the UK, Mona has lived in New York since 2014. Until recently, she served as the data editor for The Guardian US, but she's now working freelance. Mona has an infectious enthusiasm for statistics across a huge range of topics, from sexual behaviour to racial injustice or wealth inequality. And she finds brilliantly accessible ways to share that information, be that through bright, characterful drawings that have attracted a huge following on Instagram, to relatable video content, audio experiments, TV appearances, talks and written pieces. But we started off by asking Mona to give us an overview of her role as a data journalist, how she goes about sourcing the studies and information that guide her work, and what that looks like day to day. So a data journalist is just someone who primarily uses numbers to inform their journalism. So I still use all kinds of other things like interviews with people as well, but numbers are the main source of my inspiration for stories and they're the main way that I report on stories. And it kind of works in a couple of different ways. So the way I see it is the numbers inform my journalism by either helping me to zoom out or helping me to zoom in. So let's say a news story happens and it can be something quite terrible like um, what happened recently in Pittsburgh where the synagogue was attacked. I can zoom out with numbers from that one specific incident and inform readers or listeners or viewers about what the broader patterns are. So like, is anti-Semitism on the rise? Is it on the rise in specific parts of the country? Who tends to be targeted in these anti-Semitic attacks? So it's just providing people with a bit of context to this one specific event. My data comes from all kinds of different places. So I have a few kind of stock sources that I constantly think of. So I know that for unemployment numbers, I'm going to go to the Bureau of Labour Statistics. I know for population data, I'm going to go to the Census Bureau. And the data sources obviously vary a little bit from country to country. And there's a few international sources. But one of my favourite data sources is actually academic studies because I find really often academics are publishing such fascinating stuff. Some of the most fascinating bits are buried in that appendix at the back. They're just so fascinating, but they're depicted in this way that's so dry. And even I sometimes need to sit with them for 15, 20 minutes to understand what it is that I'm seeing in front of me. And so I kind of see my role a little bit as a translator. So taking information that sometimes feels a bit unintelligible or out of reach and bringing it to a broader audience. But another thing that I think people might not use enough, but I see my role as serving the readers or the listeners or the viewers. And so it's really important to me that I read my DMs. I read the things that people are sending me into my inbox about what mattered to them and what they think needs to be shown and the questions that they're asking about the numbers that are around them. So Yeah, a really big source of my ideas is just other people. Data visualisation might normally be associated with clean, graphic-heavy and even clinical representations. But Mona's illustrations turn this tradition on its head, often covering intriguing points of human interest, including bodily topics like balding patterns or feelings of regret relating to tattoos, with comical drawings that make statistics super easy to understand. She tells us more about her approach and developing a unique visual style. I think people should sometimes feel something about numbers, especially when you're looking at numbers about injustice. You shouldn't just feel cold, you should feel moved. But it's also that 
I think very rarely are numbers memorable. If you can marry that visual language with the subject itself, hopefully that's going to stick. And if that sticks, then I've done my job, hopefully. So yeah, I haven't always been confident about doing the work in this way. And if anything, my background was in making computer generated graphics. That's what I first started to do. And actually, the reason why I started doing this, I've been drawing for about three years now, these hand drawn charts, is because of feeling disillusioned with those computer generated graphics. Because I think what they do is they overstate certainty, they overstate accuracy, they give people information in a way that doesn't feel like it can be interrogated, because it's pure and someone smarter than you has made this. Whereas I think there's a certain humility to creating these hand-drawn graphics that gives people permission to question them. And I think they should be questioning them. And it also communicates the uncertainty around those numbers, right? I never put decimal places on anything that I do unless I know that that it is accurate to that specificity. So more often than not, what you walk away from, if you look at one of my graphics, is a sense of, oh, okay, this thing is higher in summer. Or that is actually the extent to which we know those facts. We don't know to the degree of precision that it's often being reported on. So by making them a bit vague in a way, I think I'm being more honest about the limits of my knowledge. Next, we asked Mona about her favourite projects of the past year and why she feels freelancing alongside full-time work can be important to a career. I went to a conference in, I think it was in Minneapolis, and I met this couple that created this magazine called The Smudge, and each month they release an issue of it, all proceeds go to a different charity each month, and they just have the most beautiful illustrations in there and really sweet articles And they asked me to do one of their cover illustrations. And they, um, which I really respected, gave me uh, information on every single person who had contributed to the magazine and their gender and racial ethnic identity. Because they wanted me to visualise on the front cover the extent to which the people that they had commissioned were white and how this is a problem throughout, like, the industry. I think the statistic was 85% of their contributors were white. And so I drew it as... 85% 85% translates to 19 out of 20. And so I drew one black hand and 19 white hands. And the 19 white hands are, all, are holding each other and kind of supporting each other. And this one black hand is kind of coming through. It took me ages to come up with it. And I'm sure it, I probably went way too far and it was too opaque. But that was really, really fun. And to accompany it, I wrote a long essay on what white culture is using data on like, what is white culture? Like we think of culture in communities of colour, but what what is whiteness exactly other than the definition of normal? Like we just think of whiteness as normal. And I did a few fun illustrations to go with that. And it was just really challenging. It was the kind of thing where I'm like really motivated by money because I really want financial security. And I really, really try to pursue all of those jobs. And yet, Like, it's the ones that don't pay that I am... If I've said yes to it, it means I really, really care. And they're the ones that, you know, as I'm going to sleep, I'm like, oh, but what if I did this thing? And then I wake up in the morning and I'm still thinking about it. So, yeah, they're the ones that I care about really deep down. Mona's work has now moved far beyond what you might expect of a data journalist role and into presenting for TV and radio. To date, she's been invited to share her expertise on panel shows, including Have I Got News For You, had a regular slot on US National Public Radio, played host to BBC Documentaries, and in 2016, she both co-created and presented Emmy-nominated video series, Vagina Dispatches. We hear how her presenting work first came about, 
I guess what happened is at The Guardian, I wrote a couple of opinion pieces where they asked me to do like a video opinion piece. So I'm just explaining my opinion in front of a camera and then they put it out. So I'd done a video piece about racism and then BBC Three approached me to do a one hour documentary on racism because they saw that video piece that I did. And then off the back of that, just lots of weird little things. After growing up in London, Mona went on to study international relations at the University of Edinburgh and then an MA at the Paris Institute of Political Studies. She describes her first steps after graduating, how she came to journalism and the role that self-learning has played in her path. So my first job out of university was working for the International Organisation for Migration, which is part of the UN. And we were monitoring the numbers of refugees and internally displaced people. It was an opportunity to see the way that the UN works and to see how much it is incredibly bureaucratic, how much it is uh, people from outside of a country or outside of a culture trying to come up with solutions for that place. Don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking it. They're really, really important and they do great stuff too. But I just felt like there was virtually no space whatsoever for creativity within that system. And it's also just like a really crazy echo chamber. So I was publishing reports, statistical reports. That's kind of how, how I got into this. So I was publishing these statistical reports that you'll work on for like six months, maybe even a year. And maybe three people will read them, maybe 10 people will read them. And again, the narcissist in me is like, I want more people to read my work. But also the more people that read your work, the more people can call you out for you having the wrong set of assumptions or for you being misguided. And so again, because it's just being shared within the UN community sometimes, that information isn't necessarily getting checked in the way that maybe it should be. So part of the way that I moved into journalism was by doing a one-day workshop at a place called the Frontline Club, which is like a journalism club in London. And they did this one-day workshop on data visualisation. And it was taught by a guy called Simon Rogers, who was then the data editor at The Guardian. And I remember I really, really loved the one-day workshop. And I went up to him at the end of the class and I was like, oh, I'd really, really love to come in for work experience. And he was like, yeah, yeah, like kind of like, he's really sweet, but also obviously trying to get rid of me, like... And so then I found his email address afterwards. I wrote to him. I asked him to come in again. He didn't respond. I wrote again. He he was like, oh, it was nice to meet you too. And then I wrote again being like, but what about the work experience? And in the end, he was like, oh, you can come in like at the beginning of whatever month and do it maybe one day a week or something. And then I wrote back being like, so just to confirm this day. And he never responded to me again. So on that day, I just showed up and it was really uncomfortable and weird but he's so sweet. He was like really apologetic because he's just so, he was just so, so busy. So then I did one day a week unpaid at The Guardian. Then I did two days a week unpaid at The Guardian as part of an internship. And then they wanted me to come in three days, at which point obviously they had to pay me. So then I did three days a week paid. And then I did five days a week paid. And then I finally got put onto a contract. And then I went over to the US to work for a different company. And then finally I became data editor of The Guardian US. I try to teach myself as many new skills as possible. I'm just so scared of being redundant or or being disposable. Like I said, I have this sense that like I could be useless at any point. So I'm constantly trying to learn new skills. I taught myself After Effects. And like a, a real motion graphics designer is going to be a thousand times better at, at all of this software than me. But it means that if I'm collaborating with them on, say, a documentary, I understand their tools a little bit. I understand the limits of what's possible and I can speak their language a little bit. So that's really, really helpful, even if it's just for collaboration. But yeah, I'm trying to teach myself new skills all the time because, again, if at the 
base of everything, I'm just a journalist, then the main thing that motivates me is what the story is. And then I'm choosing the medium for communicating that, whether it's a written piece, a podcast, a video documentary, or an illustration based on whatever serves that story the best. So like that's always the starting point. And the more tools I have in my arsenal, the better I can tell that story. Mona's move to New York came in 2014 when she joined the then newly founded editorial platform 538, created by American statistician Nate Silver. I saw that Nate Silver, who is this guy who's like considered a guru in the world of data journalism, had left the New York Times and was starting up his own thing at a company called ESPN. And so when I saw that he was starting up his own thing, I emailed him with my CV saying, like, I want to be a part of it. And so I was one of the first hires for the new website, yeah. But the company's unsupportive working environment resulted in an unhappy period for Mona and eventually became the unlikely catalyst for her work as an illustrator. It was an unhappy place for a lot of people, particularly women. Like, I remember going into the toilet one day to have a cry and I opened the door and there was already a woman in there. And she was like, it's okay, you can have the cubicle, I'm finished for the day. <laughs> it was just so awful. Um, it was a really male-dominated environment. It was a really arrogant environment. It was a place where I would say a diversity of opinion wasn't necessarily valued or respected. It was just a place where, like, I wasn't valued. And I just sensed that really early on, that, like, my contributions weren't welcome. I was just really, really frustrated. And I just remember um, one day I was writing a story on sanitary towel use versus tampon use. And so I was like, oh, I'll do a really fun data visualization. I like went into the back stationary cupboard and I got out a tampon and like dipped it in ketchup because it was like 40% of women use tampons. So I like dipped the, the tampon like 40% in ketchup. And then um, the, like the guy who cleans the office came around the corner and was like, what the hell are you doing? And I was just like, this is good. This is really good. And I, it was just like a time when I felt happy and a really, really miserable job. And so I just wanted to channel some of that like visual creativity when I'd kind of lost my words. Like I found it really, really hard to write. It was impossible to speak in meetings. I felt invisible there. So it makes sense that I was creating very vis visible objects. I wouldn't have started drawing without that, and for that, I'm really grateful, yeah. Having now lived in America for nearly five years, we asked Mona how it compares to working in the UK, and she shares her thoughts for anyone looking to make a similar move to the States. From my experience, I would say uh, work is better paid in the US. That's really helpful, <laughs> obviously. I feel like I can talk really frankly about like, oh, I did work for this person, this did really well, in a way that is quite difficult sometimes to articulate when I'm speaking to British people, because it just feels so gross and braggy and so not being ashamed of that is quite quite liberating and quite beneficial I also think that collaboration is easier in the US so I worked with a woman called uh, May Ryan while I was at the Guardian and we made a four-part video series about vaginas and then after she left the Guardian we made a, a breast exam video together and now we're working on a different video we uh, experiment with stop motion together and I feel like it's just so much easier I've had so many things where it's just like you meet a person at a party, you find out, oh, cool, Brittany's like a really great photographer. Let's organise a day out where we go and take photographs together in a way that I don't know if it's because when I was living in the UK, I wasn't surrounded by creatives in the same way. But I also feel like it feels like there's a different kind of atmosphere when it comes to doing those kinds of things. Yeah. It was really hard to move over to the US. And the only reason why I was able to do it at the time that I was, was because the company covered my visa. And it can be really, really difficult, especially under the Trump administration, to get these visas. So having gone through like 
a million different loops. Here's what I would say. If you can get hired by a British company that has a branch over there, you get something called an intercompany transfer visa, which is much, much easier for you. All the better if you can get the company to cover it. This idea that you can like go over to the US on a tourist visa and somehow get someone to hire you and it will all be okay. But it's really incredibly hard. Like they're looking at all of these other people, all of these other candidates for whom they don't have to pay 10 grand to sort out a visa for, you know? So it's really, really difficult. I would say try to get an intercompany visa and then hopefully you'll work for a company where they're kind of okay with you doing some freelance bits on the side. I wouldn't say try to go cheap on it at all. And I would also say take recommendations. Like this is the other thing now. I'm like the lawyer that I use, the accountant that I use, the immigration lawyer that I use, those are all people who like have been tried and tested by other people before I just Google it. They're too critical for your stability to just take a gamble on a Google. Someone can have a fucking great website and still be a total charlatan. As ever, we ended by asking Mona to share her advice for those just starting out and wanting to follow a similar path. I guess my advice would be like, this is really cringy, obviously, like don't be afraid to fail, but also be ready to fail. Assume that you are going to fail lots and lots, like especially with data journalism, right? You're either right or you're wrong. If I'm saying that GDP is this, if if I get the number wrong, that's a big problem. And like, I've learned that like, you can get it wrong and you have to be ready to get it wrong. So I would say, be ready to get it wrong. Be ready to pick yourself up when you do. And I don't know. It's really funny. When I first started out, I had, I couldn't have named a single illustrator to you when I started, not a single illustrator. And I think in some ways, not having all of these visual references in my head of like, this is the way that people do things was almost beneficial. So I don't know where, what to, how that's advice. It's like remain blissfully ignorant. And I think if you're that person in the room who doesn't understand what people are referencing, don't assume for a second that makes you more stupid or less than the people around you. It just means you have a different set of references that probably make you more useful in the room because... Whatever they know, you've made a space in your brain for something else that maybe they don't necessarily know. This episode of Creative Lives was brought to you by Lecture in Progress. It was presented by me, Indy Davis, and the guest was Mona Chalaby. The editor was Ivor Manley. Lecture in Progress is made possible with the support of a number of brand partners. They include Us2, GF Smith, Google, Sky Creative Agency, Colophon Foundry, and the Paul Smith Foundation. For more information, check out lectureinprogress.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter, and we love to hear from you guys, so please do get in touch with any career-related questions or topics you'd like to hear more about by emailing hello at lectureinprogress.com.